Welcome to Kessler Foundation's 2017 Multiple Sclerosis Consumer Conference, Improving Cognitive, Emotional, and Physical Health in Multiple Sclerosis. This conference is hosted by Kessler Foundation and is being funded by the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, grant number 1508-05940. This presentation was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation on Friday, October 13th, 2017 at the Westminster Hotel 550 West Mount Pleasant Ave, Livingston, New Jersey. Be sure and check out all of the conference presentations. Just click on the description for the conference playlist and slide link. Our second session of the conference, Cognitive Rehabilitation in MS, was presented by Dr. Nancy Chavrilotti. Dr. Chavrilotti is a leader in the field of cognitive rehabilitation in the U.S. and abroad, is Director of Neuropsychology, Neuroscience, and traumatic brain injury research at Kessler Foundation. Dr. Chevrolati's research focuses on the development of treatments to improve cognitive function. Let's listen in. Right now, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Nancy Chevrolati, who is an expert in cognitive rehabilitation, as John mentioned. Her, uh, she's conducted numerous clinical trials to determine effectiveness of cognitive rehabilitation interventions and her research proven techniques, she's collecting that evidence, are in use around the world. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Nancy Chevrolati. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. And thank you to Dr. Strober for doing all the work to put this on, as well as to the National MS Society and Moira in particular. Um, this is, it is a tremendous amount of work. I speak from experience in putting together these conferences. Um, and I'm really glad that we were finally able, able to execute this and, and get this together because it's a really tremendous day. It's a pleasure to be able to share our work with you. Um, it's your lives that we want to improve. But I want to emphasize, we cannot do our work without you. We do clinical research. What that means is we need patients to help us. And we are very, very fortunate to have such a dedicated group of patients who come to us and work with us and practice with us, learn from us, and we learn from them. And you help guide our research. So I cannot thank you enough for the time that you take out of your lives to work with us in trying to improve the care of MS. So I'm going to be focused on, on cognitive rehabilitation. I will be talking first about the literature, what's out there in the literature, and then I'm going to add a little bit about some of the ongoing work that we're doing at the foundation, and that's specifically in regard to processing speed and executive functioning, and you'll see why I'm doing it this way on the next slide. So we've recently conducted a systematic review at Kessler Foundation looking at the evidence for cognitive rehabilitation in MS specifically in the last 10 years. Now we did do this once before. It was published in 2006. So this was an update, and this update focused on 2007 through 2017. What I'm very happy to tell you is that the evidence has really accumulated. Things are getting a lot better. When we did our initial review back in 2006, we had very little to say. It was a very short paper. This paper is much longer, and I'm very happy to say that. So if you look at the second column on the table that you see, you'll see the number of studies. And these studies are broken down 
by domain, which you see on the first column. So Dr. DeLuca went through the different domains of impairment in persons who have MS. So on the top row, you see attention, you see learning and memory, processing speed, executive functioning. Then you have some programs that look at nonspecific or multiple domains at one time, and you have metacognition. So if you look at that middle column, you see that there have been, in the past 10 years, there have been three studies in attention, 15 studies in learning and memory, which is a lot. Four studies in processing speed, two in executive functioning, 14 studies that combine multiple domains, and then two studies in meta metacognition. Now, I do want to call your attention to the table on the right, uh, to the column on the right side of the screen. That, what that column refers to is the level of evidence that we currently have. So we classify these different types of treatments based on how much evidence we have that they work. And what you see is we now have practice standards in attention and in learning and, learning and memory in MS. That's tremendous. It is very hard to get the level of evidence. It requires multiple studies that show that a treatment works. It's very hard to get that level of evidence for a treatment, and we've been able to demonstrate it. And I say we as a field, because we're not doing all this work at Kessler Foundation, although we are doing some of it. So we were able to get that level of evidence in both attention and learning and memory. What that level of evidence means is that a nurse practitioner, a social worker, someone who's trying to get payment for services can take these articles, send them to insurance companies, and they have grounds to say, what we're doing works. You need to pay for these services. We know from experience with our colleagues at Kessler Institute that they have used our journal articles. They've sent them to insurance companies and they've gotten reimbursement. This is critical. The reason it's critical is because our work is useless if the patients can't access the care. So this is allowing patients to actually come in and get the services and take their lives into their hands and improve their quality, overall quality of life. So this is really tremendous. Now beneath that, you also see practice options. And you also see on the bottom for nonspecific, you see a practice guideline. Those protocols, those treatment protocols, also have evidence. They're in a different stage, so they don't have multiple studies that show that they definitively work. They might have one or two studies. They might have studies that have different methodological rigor and they need a clinical trial to really show efficacy. But what these practice options and practice guidelines mean is that the research is being done and the, the outlook is positive. It means that there are treatments on the horizon, that this is going to continue to develop and patients are going to have more options. So I'm going to focus on these studies that have been classified as either practice standards or practice options. However, I'm not going to completely bypass processing speed and executive functioning because those are definitely problems in persons who have MS and we have ongoing research at Kessler Foundation so we're moving in the right direction and developing and testing protocols in those areas that I'll tell you about. So first, let's talk about attention. There were three studies in attention over the past 10 years. Three studies sounds like there haven't been many. However, in the years previous to this review, prior to 2007, there were a substantial number of studies that focused on attention. So attention hasn't been entirely looked over. What's important in attention is one of those studies is a practice standard, and that's attention process training. So I'll tell you about that one first. 
Attention process training has been around for a long time. They're actually in their third version of attention process training. It went from a paper and pencil, very simple version of treatment when I was a postdoctoral fellow. Now in the third version, it's computerized, it's much easier to administer and easier for the patient to, to move through. And it is available um, in the clinical world. So there are clinicians that have attention process training available to them and do administer it to their patients. So this is some of the data. The blue line is the group that received treatment and the green line is the group that didn't receive treatment. So just as a basis in how I'm discussing these cognitive rehabilitation studies, to provide the highest level of evidence that shows that a treatment works, what we have to do is a randomized clinical trial. With a randomized clinical trial, some of you are familiar with this because you've been in our studies. We recruit patients and enroll them into a study. We do a baseline assessment to see where they, how they're doing in terms of their cognitive functioning. Then we randomize them to two groups, a treatment group or a control group. The treatment group completes the treatment in question that we're testing. The control group can do different things. Sometimes they don't have any treatment. Sometimes they do a comparable treatment that we're trying to test our new treatment against. Sometimes they do an active condition that might be exercises in the domain, but may not, we don't know if it actually has any treatment value at all. What we do is we contrast those two groups. We then do, after the treatment period, we do a follow-up assessment. And we look at everything we looked at during the baseline assessment. So we look at, did your attention change? Did your memory change? Did your executive functioning change? How is your quality of life? Which is a huge question. Depression, anxiety, what do you think of your cognition in daily life? Has that improved? So we look at all these things. So many of you who have been in our studies have spent hours with us. So you can thank the need for this evidence. That's not our fault. This is what we have to do. So that's what we do. We also do, at Kessler Foundation, we also do imaging before and after cognitive rehab. There aren't many centers that do that, um, but we do it, and there are a few centers in Italy that do it as well, to provide more of a, a neurological evidence of change. So when you have a, two lines here, you have the blue line on top, you have the green line on the bottom. The blue line shows you the individuals that went through treatment. So what this slide is showing you that is that on three different tests of processing speed um, and attention, what we're seeing is that the treatment group is showing this very nice improvement. You see that line going, the slope going up, the slope is increasing. That's showing that patients are doing better after treatment. That's what we wanna see, so it's that blue line. Another practice option for attention is REHACOM. REHACOM is a program that has about 10 different modules. So what that means is a clinician has about 10 different exercises that they can choose from to administer to a given patient. And a clinician will administer different modules depending on what the patient presents with. So if they have a problem in attention, they'll do an attention module. If they have a problem in executive functioning, they'll do an executive functioning module. The other interesting thing about REACOM is it's currently available in 17 languages. So it's being used throughout the world. And Dr. DeLuca and I are actually involved in a collaboration with several researchers across the world where we're looking to use REACOM in a group of patients who have progressive MS to look at the efficacy of REACOM in a progressive MS. And that grant actually just went in the other day. So REACOM is a practice option. Here's some of that data. So 
on this slide, on the two, the two left, the two bars on the right side of the screen are the experimental group. The two bars on the left side, I'm sorry, I'm a little challenged here with my left and right today. The two bars on the left side of the screen are the control group. And we're looking at the changes on those bars. So in the experimental group, this is the pretreatment. Sorry, on this side, this is pretreatment. This is post-treatment. So what we're seeing is a very nice improvement in the experimental group from pre to post-treatment. We see this on the right, left side of the Hang on. The other side of the screen. I have an eight-year-old that I'm working on this with, and he's doing better than I am, obviously. So on the other side of the screen, you see the control group, and there's virtually no change. So this is exactly what we want to see. We want to see a nice increase in the experimental group and no change in the control group. So this REACOM is a practice option for attention as well. So now learning and memory. This is really, this has been my focus ever since I was in graduate school. Learning and memory is essential to our everyday lives. If we don't have our memory, we lose who we are. Memory is very important to who we are as an individual because it really um, guides all of, all of our behaviors. So for learning and memory, there is one practice standard the modified story memory technique, which has been developed at Kessler Foundation over the past 15 years. Um, and many of you have actually probably gone through it. There are also four practice options. So there's a lot of work being done. One is imagery. Imagery is the basis of the modified story memory technique. So I'm not going to be talking about that separately because I'll be talking about it within the modified story memory technique. Then there's also music, self-generation, and spaced learning, which I'll, I will discuss in individually. So first, the modified story memory technique. We've been publishing on this technique since 2005. We've been conducting work on it since 2000. So we've spent a lot of time focusing on the story memory technique. It's a memory retraining protocol. It focuses on learning. So as Dr. DeLuca explained earlier, in order to remember information later, you have to initially learn it. We've identified that it is learning that's the key problem in persons who have MS. So we need to improve learning. That's what the story memory technique does. We've conducted several randomized control trials using the story memory technique. It consists of 10 sessions. The sessions occur twice per week for five weeks. They last 30 to 90 minutes in duration. And that really depends on how fast the patient works. It's very driven by the patient and how long it takes them to accomplish the tasks they need to accomplish. So to evaluate whether or not it works, we did assessments before and after treatment, as I explained earlier. And we've done neuropsychological assessments, neuroimaging assessments, as well as assessments of how a patient is functioning in their daily life. So this is what we've found. This is performance on a, a list learning measure. So many of you have come to, to participate in some of our research studies, and we've read you a list of 16 words and asked you to remember those 16 words. I know, people are shuddering, I'm sorry. We have therapists here if anyone needs to talk about it. So that first trial, it's very overwhelming. It's very overwhelming whether or not you have MS. It's overwhelming if you're 20 and perfectly healthy or if you're 80 and you're struggling with dementia. It is, it's hard. However, what this graph shows is that people learn the information over the five trials in which it's repeated. So we repeat that same list of words five times. We ask people to tell us what they remember and they remember more with each trial. Now what this graph is showing you 
In blue, you have the treatment group. In green, you have the control group. After treatment, that treatment group is able to learn a lot more information when they're trying to learn that list. So we're showing an objective change in learning performance. We're showing that from before to after treatment, patients are able to learn more information, and that's exactly what we want to see. Of course, you guys don't care how you perform on a list learning task in a nice quiet room when you have no distractions, you're only doing one thing. That doesn't really have any impact on your life. So we asked patients what they thought, how they were doing in their daily life. And what they report is from before to after treatment, again, the blue line, patients report a significant improvement in their contentment in daily life. They're feeling better, they're doing better. Cognitive problems are less intrusive in their daily life. That's exactly what we're after. We want the patients to start to be feeling better. Interestingly, the patient's families are also reporting a change in their everyday life. This is important because of what Dr. DeLuca had explained earlier. Self-report has bias. Very often, when patients are reporting about their own symptoms, that report gets confounded by how they're feeling psychologically. So are they depressed? Are they anxious? And that does bias all of our self-reports. Whenever anybody asks us how we're doing, we might be doing great, but we might just feel really lousy that day. And we say, eh, I'm doing OK. It just biases our outlook. So we asked patients' families, how are they doing in their daily lives? And what the families are reporting, again, we're looking at the blue line. In this case, a lower score is better. A lower score indicates that the cognitive symptoms are less intrusive in a patient's everyday life. So the families are reporting that the cognitive symptoms are less of a problem after treatment. Again, exactly what we're after. So I explained earlier that we also do neuroimaging before and after treatment to try to get a handle on what's happening at the level of the brain. So we got to a point where we saw that the treatment was helping. We were seeing our data come in. We were talking to patients. They were saying their, their lives are better. They feel better. Our question was, well, why is this happening? What's happening in the brain? And we're trying to understand the process that's going on. What we find is that from before to after treatment, patient, patients are showing more activity in critical areas of the brain. So areas of the brain that accomplish spatial processing tasks and areas of the brain that also accomplish organization tasks. The reason those areas are important is because when you learn new information, it goes through your hippocampus. Your hippocampus is a small center behind your ears, you have one, left, one on the left and one on the right, and your, all information goes through the hippocampus to try to remember that information later. However, the rest of your brain feeds into the hippocampus. So what we were trying to do is engage more brain regions in preparing the material so that when it went through the hippocampus, the hippocampus essentially had less work to do. And that's exactly what we're showing. The parietal lobes are more active, which is your more visual, it's visual cortex, so it's showing that you're using visual areas of the brain. Again, we taught imagery, so that's exactly what we wanted to see. And the frontal areas were more active, and what that showed is that you're organizing the information more before it enters your memory system, and that's helping you remember that information. What we also showed is a long-term treatment effect. If the treatment, if you come in, you feel better, and then the treatment effect goes away, and a week later, your memory is back to where you started, we didn't do our job. 
We want it to last longer. We want it to be worth the effort and the time that you put into it. What we showed is that six months later, the treatment effect was maintained. There was virtually no change in behavioral performance. And in addition, these areas that were more active on fMRI, on imaging, after treatment, were still more active. So not only did we show that treatment effect right after treatment, but we also showed that it stuck around for six months and patients were still doing better. So all this data fed into the decision that the modified story memory technique is a practice standard. It's also, it's available in three different languages. So we have it in English, Spanish, and Chinese. Um, we're working on it in a group format because clinicians told us that they really needed to be able to administer it in a group format for insurance purposes. So we're working on that. That's funded by the DOD. We're working on a pediatric version for it because there are kids that struggle with these issues, both kids that have multiple sclerosis and kids that have traumatic brain injury. So this is work that's ongoing, will continue to be ongoing, to try to expand our ability to reach more people with this, uh, with this program. So I talked about the story memory technique and I talked about imagery as the basis of story memory technique. There are other studies out there that support imagery as helpful for improving new learning and memory. I want to move on a little bit to talk about music. So music is a practice option. <clears throat> there are two studies that were done by the same group in multiple sclerosis. There, study, there were studies done in other disease entities as well, but it's important to show that something works in the illness that you're working with because MS itself changes the brain circuitry. So we need to make, make sure that with those changes, the protocols are still effective. So I want you to just think about music for a second. This is probably one of the most natural things that we use to facilitate memory. We just don't realize it. So you could sing a song that you sang in second grade when you're 40, and you still remember that song. We have an incredible ability to remember music years and years after we actually learn that music. What this study showed is that when you teach patients to learn groups of words according to a melody, they remember it better and their brains are more active when they're learning it than if you simply spoke the words the way we normally learn. So if you look at the red line on the top, that's the sung group. So they did a lot better in terms of learning and remembering those words than the typical way of presenting words, which is just reading them. Now I'm going to move on to talk a little bit about self-generation and spaced learning. This is something that we've been working on at Kessler for a very long time. If you think about self-generation and spaced learning, um, this is something that we all learn when we're kids, when we're in school. We hate it, and I deal with this at home all the time because I have three sons that hate it. But teachers quiz them, and they hate that they go in every other day and they have a quiz. What I explain to them is what that quiz is doing is making you retrieve the information. It's making you test yourself. It's helping you learn it. It's helping your brain circuitry learn and remember that information. So when you get to the test, it's going to be easier to study. So that's one of the, one of the foundations of some of the work that we're doing. Spaced learning is a particularly important one. We've all learned the hard way, my grade was a 33, that you cannot cram the night before an exam. 
It's simply not effective. I'll never forget it, it was freshman biology. And I tell my kids the story all the time, but they don't care. They still try to study the night before the exam. Space learning is very important. There are different cues that you get each time you review the information. Memory consolidation happens when you sleep. So there are neuroanatomical reasons that you should space out the material that you're learning. And this is one of the things that is currently being shown in MS. Spaced learning makes a difference. If you can space out repetitions, if you know that you have to go to point A on Friday, and you've never been there before, and it is a five-step direction process, start learning it on Monday. Repeat it to yourself every day so that you can learn those directions by Friday. Now that's gonna do a couple things. First, you're gonna learn it better and you'll remember it. But the other thing it will do is when you're driving, you won't be distracted trying to follow along. It's very hard to follow a navigator, very often listen to whoever's in the front seat telling you you're going in the wrong direction, <laughs> and deal with directions and try to get to a new place. That's really hard to do. Add to that that you have multiple sclerosis, so maybe your processing speed is a little bit slower. Maybe your executive functioning is a little bit less than you would ideally want it to be. And you really, it's, it's a very, very difficult situation. So if you take the time, you learn the directions, that's what we're talking about when we talk about space learning. So we've developed a treatment protocol we call STEM. We just renamed this two weeks ago. <laughs> so I struggle. Stylistic, no. Strategy training to enhance memory. There we go. I got it. Um, oh, there. I had it, on the <laughs> I had it on the next slide, but that tested my recall. So strategy-based treatment to enhance memory. So this teaches a person and significant others, ideally, to how to apply these novel techniques in daily life. So we're teaching the application of, first, the generation effect. The generation effect is the phenomenon that when you generate your own to-be-learned information, you remember it better than if somebody says, learn this. There is a, there's a robust literature showing that the generation effect works for numerous populations. We've shown it repeatedly at MS. We've shown it with didactic materials, so um, words, stories. We've also shown it with everyday life material, like learning a recipe, learning directions. The second is the spacing effect, which I already talked about, spacing out information appropriately to help you remember it. The third is the testing effect, which I also mentioned earlier, quizzing, asking yourself questions. Kids use the index card method, where they have the prompt on one side, they ask themselves a question, and they try to generate what's on the back. So you're combining now self-generation as well as testing, and you're, imp you're improving, you're helping your learning and memory system that way. So what we're doing is we've combined these three techniques, we've put them in a, protocol, a, a manualized treatment protocol, and we're teaching patients how to actually use this in their daily lives. It's an eight-session eight treatment protocol for persons with MS. We invite significant others to participate when available. The reason for that is sometimes when you're trying to use these procedures, you really need to change your environment, and the family is important to help you change your environment. And here's what we're showing. The treatment group is in blue. Again, the control group is in green. It's a randomized clinical trial, so they were, patients were randomized to either of the two groups. They did not know what group they were in. So the first measure was per perceived deficits. How do you think you're doing in your daily life? 
how, how is cognition interfering with your daily life? And we saw a very nice decrease in the amount of deficits that people were perceiving in their daily life, cognitive deficits. So we're seeing this very nice improvement in how they feel they're doing in their daily life. We also see an increase in quality of life. So we're seeing that patients are reporting after treatment, overall their quality of life is better. I thought there was another slide there, but there's not. Um, so what we're showing, and we also have data that I did not include that shows um, an improvement in actual memory performance, neuropsychological memory performance in the laboratory. This is a study that is, it's really rapidly developing. We've recently created the treatment protocol and pilot tested it. It was just funded as part of our TBI model system to conduct this study in persons who have traumatic brain injury, a large scale. This was only on about 20 people. The larger study will have 80 people. I also just submitted it to the NIH last week to try to get funding to study it in 80 persons who have multiple sclerosis. So once we complete that trial and we, showed, we have data that shows that it works, that's the point at which it will be evaluated for a treatment standard. So those are the protocols that are out there in the literature that have been evaluated as treatment standards, options, or guidelines and are available clinically. Thank you. Two more things I just want to talk about. We didn't talk about processing speed yet, and we didn't talk about executive functioning. And the reason for that is there are no treatment protocols in the literature that we can say work to address these symptoms. However, that does not mean that there aren't treatment protocols out there and that this work is not ongoing and in development. So for processing speed training, we've had work ongoing at Kessler for about eight, six or seven years now looking at speed of processing training to improve processing speed in persons who have MS. This study is funded by the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. It's actually the second study that they funded in the area. And what we're doing is administering a 10-session treatment protocol on a laptop. It's highly manualized. This protocol has been extensively used in an aging population with evidence that it's impacting daily life, it's impacting driving function, it's impacting neuropsychological deficits. It's three levels. So first, patients start with a very simple processing speed task where the information comes faster and faster. Then it gets more and more complicated visually. So you end up with distractors, you end up having to look at your periphery, it gets a little bit more complicated as people get better. And what we're showing is, this is our pilot work, is that people who have undergone treatment, again, we're looking at the blue line, from baseline to follow-up, they show a very nice improvement in their processing speed as evaluated in a neuropsychological assessment, whereas the control group, which is in green, shows no change. Interestingly, we're also showing that patients who are treated show an improvement in their memory functioning. We didn't treat memory, we treated processing speed. However, if you think about cognition, memory is, in is a higher order cognitive function, which means that there are a whole bunch of other cognitive functions that feed into it. Processing speed is one of those cognitive functions. So what we're showing is if you improve someone's processing speed, you can improve their memory functioning. So this is a fantastic finding that we hope to replicate in a, in a larger sample. In addition, we're also showing that a patient is improving in their daily life, in the speed with which they can accomplish a daily life activity. 
So this is a speeded task, so a lower score means they did it faster and it's better. So our treatment group is showing faster performance on this, act, this daily living task, whereas the control group is showing a slower performance in the, in the repeat testing. I also want to touch just a, real quickly on executive functioning. And the reason I want to touch on this, this is ongoing work that has been funded by NIDILR, which is the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, a federal, federal grant. It's a development grant. What a development grant means is that they give you money to develop something new. It's not necessarily a clinical trial. You're not at the stage where you're testing it out with patients. It's the very beginning. Develop the treatment protocol. This is a really cool development grant because it's funding virtual reality. It's using virtual reality to be more engaging. So patients are more interested in what they're doing, more invested in what they're doing, and hopefully that's going to show a better outcome. We don't have efficacy data yet, but we do have some really cool pictures. So this is actually a very interesting task. It's been, the grant's been ongoing for about three and a half years now, and now they're starting to do some patient testing. And what they're, what they're doing is testing out a task switching um, activity where a patient is in front of a photocopier and they're given different things to do. So they have to file something, they have to shred something, they have to copy something. Starts out slower as they improve the task gets more and more demanding because it has to be done quicker. So you, not only are you doing this task switching task where you're going back and forth, but you also have to do it faster and faster. So it's a really engaging protocol where patients are really getting invested in the, the work that they're doing because it seems so much like a everyday life task. Then there are other multitasking scenarios where you're at a, a computer and so, uh, something comes up on your screen to respond to a sale via your iPad, your phone can ring, someone could come over and start to talk to you. So it's a very engaging work scenario. On the bottom, this is more of an assembly line kind of situation where they have these little wonderkins, they're little stuffed animals, but sometimes they don't work right. So you have to, you have to accomplish a task where you're counting the animals that come before you, but if something functions incorrectly, you have to take it and you have to throw it down the chute. So it's a very, it's, it's actually a little bit weird, um, but it's a very engaging task and they're really cute little stuffy things. So um, that's a fun one. The other one, and this is actually my favorite. My favorite is the kitchen, kitchen task. Because I think one of the most trying aspects of my day is when I'm trying to cook dinner and I have one kid doing homework and another one yelling for me to do something else and the phone rings and it's just so difficult to track it all. So this is a kitchen task. You have a coffee maker over here that overflows, so you can't just let it go. You have a toaster here, and the toast does burn if you ignore it for too long. And then you have glasses over here that you have to fill up and serve. So it's a very engaging, very challenging situation. This is still the beginning, but what I want to show you is that this is a continuum of work. Things are at the beginning, things are at the middle, and things are published and, and out there in the public. So we're really moving along, and I think it's a, we have a really positive outlook. I think we're really starting to make a difference. And again, I want to thank all of you for giving us your time and helping us do all this work. This is a list of my collaborators. The list seems to get longer and longer every time I, I do a presentation. And also our funding sources. Without our funding sources, we certainly couldn't do any of this work um, because unfortunately money is what we need to keep things rolling. Um, so I always thank our funding sources. 
Be sure and stop by our Facebook page to listen to this podcast series and join in the conversation at our Twitter channel at KesslerFDN. To learn more about our research, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.